Hello, this is Rick Millenthal, and welcome to Voices of Resilience. In this series, we highlight the personal journeys of thought leaders through adversity and trauma to find resilience and hope. Today, we have with us Dr. Tamar Gurr, Assistant Professor of Psychiatry and Neuroscience for The Ohio State University and founder of the Gurr Laboratory. It's dedicated to improving wellness in women and children through mental health research. She has a wonderful story and is doing transformational work for women's mental health. So Tamar, thanks for joining us. Thank you so much for having me today. Really appreciate it. I co-produced this series with my wife, Karen, and I know you guys talked on the phone. And uh, when she was done, I said to her, you, you need to join us on this particular episode. So Karen's on with us. Hi, Tamar. Hi, Karen. It's great to talk to you again. You too. So you started this lab motivated by a very personal story, isn't it? Yeah, that's right. Um, so I... this. The start of my lab really um, was a culmination of a series of events that, if I'm completely honest with you both, would have much preferred not to have happened. You know, I think that um, we don't get to choose what happens to us in our lives. We only get to choose what we do with those events. And so my background, as you mentioned, I hold an MD and a PhD. Um, my PhD is in neuroscience. So I was set on studying the brain for the rest of my life. And I was trying to figure out what would be the best um, field for me myself clinically. And so I picked psychiatry because I very much enjoy people, talking to people, uh, and I enjoy um, the awake behaving brain. And so that's why I picked it over neurology, which was very interesting as well. But really, I felt in psychiatry, I could use um, my love for connecting with people. And so it was my intern year in psychiatry. And it was also a time where my family was growing. So I already had a little boy um, during medical school. I was lucky enough to meet my husband in graduate school, and we had our first child uh, while I was still in medical school. And my husband is in obstetrician gynecologist. And unfortunately, towards the end of my intern year, we lost our daughter to stillbirth. Mm. And it was really very difficult, really a horrific time. But what came from that was a realization that women's health and specifically perinatal health, so health around pregnancy, um, was something that I was very interested in and really how pregnancy shapes a human being was something that I really felt I could be interested in both from a research perspective as well as a clinical perspective. And so obviously I don't think you need to have gone through depression in order to treat depression. Um, I'm not saying that, but really I think that um, what I went through with my husband really sort of um, opened my eyes to um, a field that I don't know that I would have encountered otherwise. And I, I'm thankful that um, some good has been able to come out of our loss. Tamar, we started this podcast in order to break stigmas in mental health. Mm -hmm. And this is sort of a double stigma, isn't it? You know, oh. Mental health and the loss of a child. I couldn't agree with you more. I'm uh, in the past couple of years, we've had more and more celebrities speak out about their experiences of miscarriage and loss. Um, Chrissy Teigen being the one that has done so most recently, but I can't tell you, you know, we went through our loss a decade ago and um, it was, re it's really, if mental health is a stigma, I would say pregnancy loss is just, as you said, a double stigma. There's really just still such a prevalent view that, oh, what happened? What did you do? Is was not an unfamiliar question. 
to me at that time, there's just still this, this sense that women um, who aren't able to get pregnant or who lose pregnancies are somehow defective or deficient. And, um, you know, it's just such an archaic thought that really is still troublingly present and in our society. Yeah. You know, Karen, this is kind of a subject dear to our hearts, isn't it? I want to say, first of all, Rick and I were listening to another podcast and a line that just stuck with me was someone said, take your wound and make it part of your medicine. Hmm. We hear that from so many people who have shown resilience by taking the worst thing that had happened to them and finding a way to use it as their medicine to heal themselves and try to make meaning of it, which I find so interesting. Yeah. I think also when you're talking, the fact that 25% of all pregnancies end in miscarriage, isn't that right? Yeah, at least that's probably an underestimate, right? Right. And so it's so shocking that it's so shrouded in this kind of silence and shame. And we have a beautiful, wonderful family, but 35 years ago, we struggled and struggled with infertility. And we're very lucky that we got to form our family through adoption. So I never suffered a miscarriage, but I certainly had all that shame and secrecy around infertility. You know, I so much of what you say resonates. I think that um, infertility and I think miscarriage and stillbirth and infant loss is just so profoundly lonely uh, because people don't talk about it. And there's just so much evidence out there now scientifically that loneliness is just really bad for you. And I know that we're all learning that more and more during this pandemic. And so I think that that's part of why I'm here talking to you today. That's here with why I talk about this in, at all is to reduce the stigma and to reduce uh, the loneliness that surrounds this issue. And I think that, um, it, you know, I have the privilege to be able to speak about it and um, have a platform to speak about it. And so it's the least I can do. And so I can tell you though, that there were challenges over the years. I remember I was pregnant with my nine-year-old. Um, I had a patient and she was referred to me because I developed an interest in this field uh, from a general psychiatrist who, after she went through loss and she came into the office and she sat down and she looked at me in the eye and she said, you must be kidding me. And I said, what makes you say that? She's like, you're pregnant. I'm coming here to talk to you about the loss of my baby. And you're, and she used an expletive, pregnant. Mm -hmm. um, and I said, I can see why that would um, confuse you and why that would be hurtful to you. The rule in psychiatry is that you disclose personal information if you're doing it for the benefit of the patient, not your own benefit. Mm -hmm. And so in that moment, I just saw this rage in her eyes and this mm. pain. And I disclosed, you know, I think the reason that your doctor thought you and I would be a good fit for therapy is because I went through stillbirth very recently. And I, this is something that I've decided is going to be my life's work. And we just both sat there in silence for a few moments. Um, and we proceeded to have a really good therapeutic alliance and do some really good work together over the next two years. And uh, it was one of the most uh, fulfilling uh, doctor-patient relationships I've had. And that's sort of what I learned and took that from there. Isn't there something called narrative medicine? Yes. So narrative medicine is this idea that, um, well, there's a few ideas to it, um, but one is that um, by writing your own narrative or by reading the narrative of others, you can, it can be therapeutic. Mm -hmm. It's difficult. You know, as we, we were talking before, you know, it's really important to me as a psychiatrist not to be processing my own grief. Um, it's really a focused on the patient and their, their, their experience and 
um, helping them move forward in their journey. And so, um, I, you know, I have to be very careful to make sure that, you know, their story is the story in the room at all times. And so if I do discuss my experience, really limit it to a way that is effective in moving them through grief, not, you know, not as a chance for me to um, process. I do my processing on my own time. I'm, I'm very careful in that. Well, I was just going to say, you're not always in the room. So most of your life, you're not in a room with somebody else. You're just, you're being you. Right. And that's just a part of who you are. Yeah. Um, And it's part of the feeling and the idea that, you know, we move through grief, but it doesn't leave us unchanged. You know, you wrote that there's a stigma attached to women who go through pregnancy loss, but especially how we grieve. Yeah. What do you mean by that? Oh, I meant so many things. I think that every loss is different. And um, I think that we have the, 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 the closest comparison I can come to is a terrible comparison, which is breakups. Um, and I, I remember, um, you know, the, the rule for breakups I was taught, I think, by Cosmopolitan Magazine in high school was that uh, <laughs> you grieve a breakup for half the length of the relationship. So if you've been dating someone for six months, you feel bad for three months. And so I, I think that people must have all read that article. They sort of feel like, well, right. if you have a miscarriage, it's not like, you know, this wasn't like the, lo- you know, like the loss of a child that you, you know, like a like a, the, losing a three-year-old shouldn't hurt as much as losing an 18-year-old child or losing a miscarriage, a pregnancy at six weeks shouldn't hurt as much as losing a pregnancy at 12. Mm-hmm. And that's not nearly as bad as losing a pregnancy at 18 weeks. And we sort of try to apply this arithmetic right. um, to unfathomable loss. And I would just say that half of infinity is still infinity. And so I think that this is uh, all too often, um, this is applied to women who are grieving uh, miscarriages or stillbirth or infant loss. And it's this idea of like, well, you didn't even know your child or you didn't even whatever, fill in the blank. And it's just um, not reality-based. Right. We want, we want to have comparable grief, but you know, everybody's grief is their own grief. And so you go through it your own way. And actually the people who taught me that, speaking of resilience, are my aunt and my uncle. They lost my cousin uh, when he was in his last week of army service in Israel oh. in the IDF. Uh, his Jeep overturned and he was crushed to death. And um, they called me um, shortly after uh, we lost our daughter and they just, they were so sad for me and they really grieved with me and told me they knew how I felt. And they really, um, it was really important. It it was really important at the time. Uh, it made me feel very seen and understood that my an uncle who talk about living a full life after losing a child, their middle son, um, just have gone on to do tremendous things, um, beautiful things uh, for their country and for their family and, you know, for other uh, grieving parents. And, uh, you know, they were like, this is the worst club to be a part of. And they really made me feel that though I, you know, hadn't raised my child to 22 years of age, I very much had lost a child as well. And it really taught me a lot about letting, you know, letting go of this sort of, I had definitely been giving voice uh, to these ideas like, why am I, you know, uh, you know, I didn't even know, you know, get to meet her. I, you know, why am I so devastated? Like, why is this so Mm -hmm. soul crushing? It really taught me a lot about empathy. And it just was really, it was really pivotal to me, I think, in my healing process that they, um, I don't want to say sanctified my grief, but acknowledged it as, um, commensurate with their loss of their adult son. And so it takes a lot of work and energy to grieve. And 
that's just such a waste of really precious work and energy when we sort of berate ourselves or fall down these rabbit holes of relativism. It's not helpful. Do you have advice for, for if you have a family member or a friend or someone who's gone, who's gone through this and they're in the grieving process? Is there something we could do? Yeah, the first thing is to show up. I think um, I'm sure others who have gone through loss have talked about this. Um, but you know, part of the loneliest thing is that people, since they don't know what to say, say nothing and disappear. And uh, they are so afraid of saying the wrong things, they say nothing. You know, one of the hardest things is when people avoid you because you're in pain, and that just makes it so much harder. Just to show up is, I think, the first step in helping a friend or an acquaintance or a colleague. And the second thing is to list them and meet them where they are. I think that we have this idea that if you know we bring it up, that's wrong. Just sort of meeting people where they are. If you ask them how they are, how are you doing? How can I help you? I'd love to do something to help you. What can that be? Um, and you know, follow up. Like, hey, just wanted to check in. Have you thought of a way I could be helpful or something I could do that would be good right now? I'd like to show up for you. Really just meet people where they are, I think, is the best thing you can do. I also think that sometimes people, when they have, especially if, when you're in this stage of life, people all around you are getting pregnant and having babies, and then they're afraid to share something you know, wonderful, and that makes you feel even more lonely. More isolated. Yes, I've seen that go horribly awry over the years. Uh, through patience and through my own experience. And really the, the rule of thumb is just uh, in the same way that make sure you're divulging or not divulging for the person, not for yourself, right? So don't cut them out because you can't take it because it's so hard. Do the harder thing. I think that's the harder thing, but I also think that you have to have, um, you have to have, you know, faith in the people whom you love. Yes. So, you know, I always say my pain doesn't take away from, the joy I have for you. Yes, exactly. Exactly right. Like I, you know, the two can coexist. The two exist right. simultaneously can exist. Correct. And, you know, and that's okay. What do you think for men, a birth of a baby really does in many ways occur at birth? You know, they, they don't, they don't carry the child. I wonder what you think about this. They don't carry the child. And so yeah, yeah. the connection and you hear so much that, you know, the arrival of the baby at birth is, you know, the event itself. And uh, do you think it's tough for men to really understand this loss? Well, yes and no. I think that um, all too often fathers are ignored when we talk about this. So I'm really glad you brought it up. Uh, men go through their own grieving process. I mean, talk about stigma. Mm -hmm. uh, society likes nothing more than to beat up on a man for showing any feelings or for struggling with grief or with emotions, right? So we, we expect our, our boys, starting with in, in childhood, up through our men to just get over it, um, don't cry, right? So men have their own path to walk when we talk about grieving. And then with specifically when we talk about grieving a child, um, so much focus, and rightly so, is on the mom in the aftermath, you know, her physical recovery, her emotional recovery. Um, but all too often, I think men are overlooked and they can, they certainly, um, share the heartbreak. And I think what you said is um, almost what makes it harder for them. So a woman might have memories of feeling the baby move inside her, if it's a, I'm thinking of stillbirth, or in, in terms of even in, in miscarriage before, um, 
stillbirth is just a technical term for the loss of a pregnancy after a certain number of weeks gestation. Um, before that, it's considered a miscarriage. But you know, a woman might have you know the morning sickness. A woman might have more ways to physically connect with a growing baby. Whereas for a man, as you mentioned, like a lot of times under healthy pregnancy conditions, it's really at delivery when they, when the baby is born that they are able to physically connect, but they still have the loss of all the, f- the future, the future that they had dreamed of for themselves and their child and their family. And I mean this, of course, for partners, not just men. So, you know, I've, I've, I've worked with couples where um, the other parent is a mother and uh, it can be very difficult for them as well to feel a lot of the same complexities arise in those situations, just in an effort to be inclusive in my conversation today. So it, it, it can be complex from so many different ways. You know, when you're talking about that, that's the same thing. I, I, I guess I'm generalizing, so I'll just say personally for me, and I think also for Rick, that's what infertility is. Yes. And the dream comes a different way. But, you know, I think that I'm, I'm so heartened that part of your research is not just the loss of, you know, of, of an actual physical baby, but the loss of the dream of a baby. Karen, as you were talking, as we went through our infertility, I never could feel it the way you did. You know, I know Karen felt it as a failure for us somewhat. And for me, I tried to make her feel better about that. It's not a failure and we're going to build our family. And boy, we built such a beautiful family. We're so proud of them. But I do think that this is core for women, whether it's infertility, mm-hmm. the loss of a child, it's the grieving of the child, um, but it's also something core for you as a mother, I think. Yeah. I, you know, I think that's, you know, we were speaking before about, um, you know, the stigma in our society. I think that's part of what makes this stigmatized is this sort of feeling that, I mean, we really put pregnant women through so much. I mean, we, we almost fetishized them like, oh, like I once had a um, barista at a coffee shop refused to serve me a cup of coffee because she saw that I was pregnant. She's like, you shouldn't be drinking. I said, <laughs> my OB lets me have a cup, you know, here I am a physician. I was like, my, uh, I was like, my OB lets me have, you know, a cup of day, you know, and it's just, you know, what we put such a premium on what pregnant women put in their mouths. Like, is that, is that sushi? I'm like, it's vegetable sushi, right? Like, you know, we, and so this idea that, um, whatever happens to the baby is a woman's fault. Like, why would you eat that? Why would you do that? You know, what, what, you know, what are you thinking? What are you doing? And mm-hmm. it was just really hard to let go of that concept when there is a pregnancy loss or difficulty getting pregnant. Cause it's this like, well, this is what your body's literally built to do. Right. Right. And it's not doing it. Well, how come? And so, you know, what did you, you know, what happened? What did you do? Like what, you know, what, we always want a reason an explanation. We want to be able to place blame. And so I think that that's part of, that's part of it. That's, I think, a big part of it is this focus on pregnancy and uh, in our society and focus on, you know, what what pregnant women are doing. Like, you know, are they doing yoga? What are they doing? What are they doing? And it's because it's their their responsibility at all times. And so I think that's part of what drives the shame and stigma is the sense that I must have done something. Right. And I think that in, especially in our, you know, modern society, that women internalize it so much that part of your research, I know some people have, um, women have multiple miscarriages, their fear of getting pregnant again. Yes. And then that, that, then that feeds into kind of, you know, 
you want the mother's mental health not to affect the subsequent pregnancies, which I assume is something that you're doing at the lap when you're lap. Well, you know, that's such a, women are caught between such a rock and a hard place. And it's such a fine line to walk between this wasn't your fault. And, Mm -hmm. you know, how could, what can we do to help ensure future health? And so, you know, what I would say is that the answer is we we have to support women in subsequent pregnancy. You know, women are on the same side as their child. So mm-hmm. if that means taking a medicine that will help them with depression and anxiety, so be it. Like that's what's good for them is what's best for their baby. And really just figuring out a way to talk about that and think about that with with patients um, is just so important because that's certainly not the message they're getting day in and day out. Now you dealt with your grief by treating the loss as completely a loss of a child. I believe you had a burial, right? Yeah, we, we did. You know, um, so um, we're Jewish, and in uh, Jewish custom, you can. Um, it's one of those slight differences. You can have a uh, a burial um, uh, for a stillbirth, not a full funeral. Um, the child needs to be born alive for that. But certainly, a, a burial is a very emotional, very intense experience. And I think I mentioned that my you know my husband is an obstetrician, and so. Um, not to get into too much detail of the circumstances, but you know, delivering our our daughter and going through a burial, I thought was just such was one of the last things I could sort of do for her, mm-hmm. um, and really to do f- for him as well to have you know, um, to have that that space and that place um, for her to be fully commemorated. I thought just meant a lot, but that's definitely not the right choice um, for everyone. I'm not here to give medical advice on how to uh, medically deal with a, with a, with a stillbirth situation, but for me, psychologically, emotionally, and, and, and medically, it was the correct decision, um, but not one that we made lightly. And actually, I got quite sick during the delivery, and it was actually it was very scary. Developed an infection, and it was it was very hard. Um, and I actually had a I had a dream that I um, I was very close to my maternal grandparents, my Saba and my Safta. They came and stayed with us for a year after I was born, and I had a dream that. I was with them uh, while I was in labor mm. and that I um, was in an apartment with them and there was a, a crib there and uh, oh. they told me not to worry that they would take care of my child. That was a profound experience and uh, one that I've always be thankful for. And so I don't know what your listeners' beliefs are, but um, it was very momentous for me and really a huge comfort being able to bury our daughter and have that complete experience really was in the long run, really important in terms of moving through grief and into resilience and into, you know, having a fountain from which to draw, to work with others, just being able to move forward um, and really uh, draw inspiration um, from your grief in order to move forward is just a really important part of moving forward from this particular type of loss. I love that. Draw inspiration from your grief to move forward. Yeah. And that's what you're finding in your research? Um, You know, it's just really the idea of radical acceptance. It's terrible, but this idea that like, I've already been through something pretty horrific um, and I survived it. So I radically accept that something horrific can happen to me again and I will survive it. It's sort of the, at the heart of a lot of, um, you know, the, the therapeutic process around this. It's hard. Now, because of all the things you're saying, it's prevalent for there to be depression. It's technically an adjustment disorder. The psychiatrist in me comes out. (laughs) Um, It's technically an adjustment disorder, 
or grief. Um, it can certainly be complicated. Um, so the definition of, of trauma, you know, a trauma is where you think you might die or someone you love might die. And obviously this can meet the definition. Um, and so the idea that uh, you can develop a post-traumatic stress disorder from obstetrical complications is really an important one that deserves research and deserves a better understanding. Um, and so that can absolutely develop after this type of trauma. The research part, I, I, I I don't want to disappoint you or your listeners, but I research um, mostly in mice. I do have some human studies. I do have a human study up and running. Um, but um, so I, I, I want to make the major caveat that uh, in mice, you know, I hate it when scientists overinterpret their findings. <laughs> in mice, we know that stress has a profound effect. Um, and I don't think anyone living through this pandemic would argue with that finding. And so what I'm specifically interested in, how stress shifts the the mom's, um, the mom's microbes. I wish it was something more exciting than that, but it actually turns out that microbes are incredibly important to human health as well. And so I'm very interested in how um, microbes are, are, shift, are changed by stress and how the mom's immune system and inflammation are shifted by stress and how that contributes both, well, I won't say both positively and negatively, but I, I, I think... Um, negatively might be um, sort of a, a, a more correct term, how that negatively might Im- influence the intrauterine environment or what's going on in utero, what's happening in, uh, in there um, during pregnancy and how that might change um, the future for, for the fetus, for the baby. And so um, right now we're mostly focused, again, as I mentioned, in mice, but we, I do actually have a study uh, with my husband uh, in, in, in humans um, we took a little break with COVID, but we're up and running again that's interested in looking at stress and anxiety and depression and um, trauma during pregnancy and how microbes and inflammation might um, play a role in obstetrical outcomes and what might, what happens to the pregnancies. And of course, this is all with an eye towards someday being able to offer um, interventions that could help both mom and baby mm-hmm. and their long-term health. So that's something that we um, are really lucky to be able to work on together here. Um, and we're very interested in in the findings from that. Once we start to figure out the influence of stress, I very much am interested in understanding resilience better and why um, why some moms are might be differently affected. Um, why some off, uh, off, we say offspring in mice. I don't say offspring is in human, but why some offspring might be differently affected by stress and how resilience comes about. And I think that uh, there's just there's definitely a lifetime's worth of work here, and I'm really excited to be in the relatively early stages of my career <laughs> uh, and have some time to figure out some of these questions. The last thing I would want anyone to get from this podcast is that if they're stressed, it's bad for their baby. And I can tell you, I myself, I was on a very stressful rotation um, the, several weeks prior to the, the loss of our daughter. And I really um, berated myself. I was berated myself for that. And I just, I don't want anyone listening to think that it was their fault. You know, um, there's, there's no evidence from our mouth studies that the stress uh, is causing miscarriages or fetal loss. And so I, I feel like it's important to say that because I, I, I really don't want moms to blame themselves. You also wrote that treatment for the mother is the best possible treatment for the infant. Yes. Too many times women think that if they just white knuckle it through pregnancy and don't get help for their dark thoughts or for sad thoughts, then that's what's best for their baby. And it's just not the case. Whatever helps you, talking to a therapist, and if, if medication is indicated 
get receiving medication, whatever helps lower your stress level, helps helps your mood, helps your outlook, helps you is what's most helpful for the baby. And I think uh, too often an oppositional relationship is entered for no reason. Really, there's every evidence that treating depression, treating anxiety during pregnancy is beneficial in terms of obstetrical outcomes, in terms of preventing preterm birth and other things like that. They're on the same team, the mom and the baby. Well, I would imagine that's the same thing for afterbirth. Yes, absolutely. Postpartum depression has its own stigma. You know, that's another thing celebrities have started talking about more recently, which I think has been beneficial. But this idea, you know, I think women feel so bad that they're not overjoyed, uh, that they're having any types of troubles when all they should be feeling is damn lucky that they just don't ask for help. And it's just, it's you know, it's just, so, we have so many treatments that help postpartum depression, postpartum anxiety, that really it's, it, it's just so sad that women feel like they can't uh, avail themselves of that because of stigma or because of how they should be feeling. Like there's no, there's no shoulds in any of this. How you're feeling is how you're feeling. And it's just so hard to convince women of that sometimes. I want us to make sure that we end up with this um, episode talking about, you know, the, the the resilience that Tamar found personally, and what you found in your research about, um, you know, in in infer- in infertility or in pregnancy loss or whatever there is that, you know, I think you said before that you want people to know that when something really horrible happens to you and you think you can't go on, you really can. It's always a a, a little bit of a tight wire act when I get a new patient who's just recently had a loss. It's um, I sort of know because I've been doing this for about a decade now. I always sort of know the different phases that she's going to walk through, and it's really sort of figuring out that's the sort of the balance between letting them know that they're going to be okay, but also not minimizing what they're going through. Because if right. you tell someone it's going to be okay too soon, it very much disempowers them from working through their grief because, or it's very much, ins- I don't want to say insults, but it minimizes their grief, right? Like it's going to be okay. is can be very painful to hear mm-hmm. when you're struggling with either infertility or miscarriage or stillbirth or infant loss. It's very insulting to be told everything's going to be okay. And so, you know, I sort of look for signs that that might be what they're ready to hear. And usually signs of that are, you know, when they start looking for meaning from it, when they, when there starts to be a sense of this can't be for nothing, I can't have lost my child for no reason. I think that when you start seeing glimmers of, I need this to mean something, I'm looking for a bigger purpose or I'm looking for meaning. This is when you can start that process, that conversation of you're going to live a full life. It's so it's you're going to you're going to pull yourself out of this. There's going to be resilience. That's when the resilience piece can come into it. But at first, it absolutely has to be a process of grieving, of of sadness, of anger, of denial, of frustration, just rage. You know. So I've said this before. That's the key to a human being's resilience. Yeah. Is you stop you start looking outside of yourself. Yes, I think that's absolutely correct. Resilience can look like so many things. Losses like this um, connect you so deeply with your humanity, with the good parts of your humanity. And so I think that just showing up, you learn to show up, right? And so even if it's a different type of loss, you don't shy away from the difficult conversations following loss and just, um, it can 
It can be so important. And so if anyone's listening who's not at that phase, I just want to tell you like, that's okay. Like, you know, I don't want anyone, you know, it's okay if you're still very angry. Um, I was very angry for quite a while. um, And it it, it didn't happen overnight that I became a psychiatrist specializing in this. Like it took a long time to really grow into this role. And I I, I was very angry. I I, uh, remember I chewed the ear off of someone. I hadn't like, we used to get these lunch cards when I was a resident and I went to buy lunch shortly after this happened and I had no food. And so then I was hungry and grieving and I called the resident life office and I, they were like, we didn't fill out the survey. You don't get your lunch money unless you fill out a survey. And I was like, my baby died. I just want to eat my lunch. <laughs> and I can't be sure of it, but I swear to you that the rest of my training, I think I had double the lunch money I was supposed to have. I never <laughs> seemed to run out of it. I thought about that poor person several times over the years and just wished I hadn't put that on them. What, what would be the uh, biggest piece of advice if you, to, to leave us in this episode uh, that you'd give to parents going through this and frankly, the, their loved ones to, to be supportive? Well, this is something I talk about, I think, with every patient. So I guess this must be my biggest piece of advice is that there are circles of grief and it's really important to be aware of them. Um, and if we think of the, the parents as being in the innermost circle here, it depends on the family dynamics, but they, maybe their parents, the ones who have lost a grandchild right outside in the next or siblings who have lost a the, the, the baby in the circle right outside and then other close family and then other close friends. And we think of the circles just moving outward. Um, all too often I see people, the circles should never dump inwards. The grief should, you know, the, the grief should always flow outwards. When grief doesn't go well is when there's just too much dumping inwards. And, and you know, I think this is important to my patients because sometimes they'll just say things like, I don't know why I was so mad at my grandma when she told me, you know, that it's okay, I'll have another baby. And I'll say, oh, that's because the circle dumped inwards. The grief should always flow outside, out to the outer circles. And that's sort of, I think, really important part of the grieving process. Um, And then I guess the thing I would tell just overall in terms of resilience is that when you're ready for it, your your life will be full again and whole again. And uh, if you're at a place where you can't imagine that, just tuck that away and put it on a shelf for a time when you are ready for it and just know that it's there truly. So if there's one thing we could get out of our podcast today is the idea that it, you, know, you can have a full and happy life, even going through the unimaginable. Well said. Well said. Thank you so much for sharing this. It's brave to tell the story and it's uh, brave to do what you're doing. And I think you're helping hundreds of people, which, you know, uh, ultimately helps thousands of people. So Dr. Tamar Gur, thank you very much. Thanks to both of you. I think you're doing a wonderful thing as well. Thanks, Tamara. I'm going to hold on to that grief should always flow outward. Yes. To learn more about the Gur Lab, check her out on Twitter at Tamar Gur, MD, PhD. That's T A M A R G U R M D, PhD. Reach out, connect. Anything you can learn from this episode, you're not alone. Voices of Resilience is produced by the marketing engineers at the shipyard in collaboration with the Ohio State University Department of Psychiatry and Behavioral Health. To listen to our whole series, visit us at VoicesOfResiliencePodcast.com or on Spotify, Google, and Apple Play. We recently named by Adweek as the best podcast in the nation launched during the pandemic. So many thanks to our award-winning team, Mike Long, 
Kate Masters, Coop Studios, and of course my favorite, Karen Millenthal. Thanks for joining us. <laughs>